The Gospel reading is from Mark chapter 9. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. God. I usually refrain from uh, sharing stories from within the congregation or sharing people's uh, names and identifying people in my sermon, unless I've asked permission uh, from them to use it. But every few weeks I get uh, a note of encouragement from someone in the church. And let's just say they're um, one of our older uh, members in the church. They have white hair and a beard. Um, Their name kind of sounds like um, Red Redette. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to identify them fully because I don't have permission to share this story, but it's not actually from their life, but a story that they shared with me. Uh, Fred sends me these uh, magazine clippings sometimes uh, that include an interesting and often uh, redemptive story. And I tell you this so I can, uh, you know, brag on him a little bit, but also because I want to share the story that he sent last week because it's so relevant to our discussion. It's about a a U.S. senator who crossed party lines to serve a a colleague, demonstrating um, the greatness that Jesus is talking about by doing something rather small. Mark Hatfield, many of you know the name, was a a Republican senator from Oregon uh, from the late 60s all the way to the late 90s. And one night he was on his way home from his work at the Capitol when he heard that Senator John Stennis was robbed at gunpoint and had been shot in the stomach. Now, Stennis was a well-known Democrat who had clashed repeatedly with Mark Hatfield about various things, but they shared a a mutual, if maybe slightly begrudging, respect. And Stennis, like Hatfield, was a a very prominent politician, a nationally recognized senator. So while Stennis was in surgery for six plus hours, the the switchboard office uh, at the hospital, normally staffed with one person was swamped with calls from the media and from his friends and from fellow senators. And um, Hatfield drove when he heard the news directly to the hospital. But when he walked in, instead of finding a, a reporter to talk to, so maybe people would recognize this magnanimous act of showing up for a, a political opponent, he didn't gravitate toward those who like him, possess power and fame and 
those who belonged to his social class. He noticed instead the, the switchboard operator and how overwhelmed she was. And so he sat down beside her in what was essentially a closet in the hospital, picked up a headset, and he answered calls with her. He answered calls with her all night long and then got up and left without fanfare. Those halcyon days, right, uh, when political rivals could speak to one another and they respected one another and they spent time with each other. But this is more than just an anecdote from a, a long lost time of political bipartisanship. It's the story of someone, a follower of Jesus, by the way, who in that moment saw greatness not as something to possess and to hoard, but as an instrument of service to others. And in a place filling up with senators and generals and reporters, Mark Hatfield found that lone phone operator struggling to keep up. And in that place, with all of these important people, she became the most important person in the room. Who is the greatest? The disciples asked themselves, semi-immediately on the heels of Jesus telling them that he would be delivered into the hands of men, that they would kill him, and after three days he would rise. Debating which of them is the greatest in that context is profoundly tone deaf, not to mention an obvious betrayal of Jesus 101. What were they thinking? Why are they talking about this in that context? But I guess it makes me wonder about myself and wonder about us. How many of us have done ministry or an act of kindness while wondering who's watching. Maybe you've driven or walked by one of our many homeless encampments and sort of congratulated yourself on the choices that you've made that didn't lead to you being in a tent. Have you ever attended a, a funeral and, and hope people would ask you about your new job? or notice the new clothes that you have on for the funeral. Who is the greatest is a, is a question that the disciples were asking because it's a question that all of us ask constantly. And it's a question that we answer with our everyday choices, with our response to mistreatment, with whom we choose to place our hope in, with the priorities that we want from and assign to the people that we elect. And it's a question whose answer pre-configures a church's mission, because inevitably a church must choose whether it will yoke itself to and be beholden to those with power and influence and wealth and status, i.e. those people that generally allow the church's doors to stay open and keep the staff paid? Or will it intentionally be beholden to the least and the last and the lost? Will it utilize whatever wealth that it has 
internal inside its congregation to keep its doors open in order to serve those who are like the, the children in this passage. Now, who are these children? Children may seem like a strange category for Jesus to highlight as especially representative of the kinds of people that the disciples are to give preference to. I mean, who doesn't love children? Who doesn't love children? Ancient agricultural people generally didn't love children. And that's why Jesus chose children for this teaching moment. Now, it's not like these ancient parents were known for disliking their children as much as it was that they didn't love them in the same Instagrammy and Gettys key to happiness, puppies and rainbows sort of way that we love and we think about children. In the ancient world, having children wasn't the center of life. It wasn't a sign of arriving in adulthood. The focus of life for the ancient people that followed Jesus and read Mark's gospel, the focus of life for them was survival. It was growing or finding food. It was just staying alive. Having children was often a decision that was based on a very practical cost-benefit analysis. Children represented, you see, the, the future of the tribe and the continuation of the family name, sure. They were vital to the family's labor force. And one day, the children would grow up and take over the family farm or business, and they were essential to caring for their parents in their old age. There was no social safety net in those days, and so that was the cycle. You had to have children in order to be taken care of in your later days. But children, that is infants, toddlers, the pre-adolescence, the age of the children or the child that, that Jesus is said to have taken up in his arms. At that age, children would be considered one more mouth to feed. They would be considered an, an economic liability because they were a huge investment of time and energy and resources that may not pay off because of how many children in that day died. How many children contracted an illness and couldn't perform the duties that children were supposed to? And children themselves had no power and virtually no rights. Historians have argued that, that children in that day had more in common in terms of societal status with slaves rather than their own parents. So children were sort of insiders on the outside, or maybe outsiders on the inside. But whichever one of those that we choose, children existed in sort of a, a liminal space where their status wasn't entirely clear and they didn't fully belong anywhere. Now, understanding this bit of cultural background should help us understand why they are the ones that Jesus tells us to welcome in his name. 
it's perfectly in line with the sort of reckless love, the sort of upside down thinking, the disruptive justice that Mark has been describing as Jesus' mission for nine chapters. Welcoming children, then, is welcoming those who we may know to be an economic liability. It would mean welcoming those who are expected to be a burden. It means welcoming those who might break our hearts. It means welcoming those who are very literally another mouth to feed. Welcoming people in this way is greatness. Greatness according to a heart that's been turned inside out and a world turned upside down by the gospel. It is the great reversal that will be more clearly seen by these disciples when Jesus, the literal embodiment of greatness, takes on the form of a servant and forsaking privilege and power is nailed to a criminal's cross on our behalf. That we are to see is the ultimate embodiment of greatness. And it's a greatness that the world and its power brokers did not welcome. They didn't want a redefinition of greatness, certainly not from some poor rabbi, certainly not a greatness that is found in service and self-sacrifice, because to welcome that would be to welcome their own undoing. But Jesus says, whoever welcomes one such child as this welcomes me. Coming on the heels of the disciples' discussion about who is the greatest, isn't, isn't Jesus saying that the answer to that question isn't who we say is the greatest, isn't who looks or seems to be great, but it is those who act with the greatest compassion toward those on the margins. It is those who, who choose to love those who, like children in Jesus' day, may not provide a good return on our investment. Greatness shows up in those who, in those who serve those who know that those they serve may not even recognize their sacrifice or love us in return. And a church that welcomes, G, welcomes children in Jesus' name? Well, surely if Jesus is speaking about welcoming those who are like children, in the ancient world. Wouldn't that also include our actual children? Which would mean that our worship services, when we are able to resume meeting in person, of course, our worship services, if we welcome children in Jesus' name, will never be dependably quiet. They'll never be predictably calm. They might be a bit rowdy and full of distractions, they might be disrupted. They might be full of children's voices and noises and giggles and tears. Parents 
at a church like this, parents at in town should never feel that their children have interrupted worship. Because of all people, their children are surely welcomed by Jesus. One of the most memorable worship services that we've ever had at in town was uh, when a young girl, a member of the church, walked on stage right after the doxology while everyone was standing and waiting to be dismissed and asked to read from her children's Bible. Now, I had no idea how long she was going to read or what passage or how the congregation would feel about standing for an indefinite period of time when just a moment ago I was about to dismiss everyone. But in that moment, I decided that this was a holy disruption and allowed it to play out. Now, I was somewhat prepared for this moment because this same girl had walked up on stage in the middle of the service a few years previous and asked to sing Jesus Loves Me a cappella. And it was a beautifully disruptive moment. See, I personally like for worship to be predictable, to be scripted, and to be led by those with credentials and training, people like me. My theology of worship, like yours perhaps, uh, can be a little bit self-serving. But you see, Jesus had other priorities in those moments when that little girl walked up on stage. And while most people, most of you, would be hard-pressed to remember a single sermon of mine, everyone who was there to receive that small girl's ministry remembers it and likely was moved to tears by it. This passage, friends, gives great dignity to actual children as well as those who care for them. And it gives great dignity to the often menial and repetitive and thankless tasks that we have to do to care for our children. And it focuses our attention on all those who, like children in the ancient world, lack status, lack power, lack agency, lack ability. And Jesus tells us that greatness is found in serving them. You see, Mark isn't simply giving us, however, a, a ministry strategy, but he's telling us something essential about Jesus himself. Because Jesus didn't come teaching new ideas about greatness. He didn't come only doing that. But in him, God became human. In the incarnation, the king of all creation becomes the servant. That which is impossibly great became impossibly small. Jesus comes with the authority and the power of heaven itself, but he chooses to bind himself to the needs of the world, particularly those who are burdens to society, particularly those who are on the outside looking in. And Jesus comes 
seeking relationship, not first of all with those who are great in the world, but those who are the least. The king of all creation comes saying to each of us, my life for yours, my wealth for your poverty, my greatness for your lack. Friends, that's the gospel, and, and I encourage you to take hold of it. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray that you would help us to pursue greatness by pursuing being small, that we would look for those in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our country, and around the world, those that occupy the, the weak places in our world, those who lack agency, those who lack the funds to fight for themselves and to claim uh, their rights. Father, I pray that you would help us to be on the lookout for such as these, for those who are children or those who are like children. Father, I pray that we would do this as a church, that we would see our, see our place in this city, as a calling to find those who are like the children in Jesus' passage and to lift them up with acts of kindness, with acts of compassion, and that we would never grow comfortable in our having, our possessing, but we would always see the resources that you bring to us as resources for the betterment of others and for lifting others up and for introducing people to your gospel, to this gospel, which says the least shall be first. Father, we pray that we would be such people as those. In Jesus' name, amen.